Father God, we just come before you and we thank you so much for this day that you've given to us. We don't want to take that for granted. And uh, we don't want to take for granted the health that you've given us and our skills as health providers. And uh, Lord, I also know that you have plans for each one of us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans for a hope and a future. And uh, Lord, I just pray that through this weekend that you will make your presence known and your plans for each one of us just a little bit clearer. And, uh, Father, I ask just for your help that we'll keep our ears and eyes and hearts open to whatever lessons you want to teach us and guide the words and the information from this presentation that it will improve our health, um, capa- uh, cap- health, pro- yeah, health provision capabilities, um, that we can provide um, excellence in, in medical care and health care to earn that platform to speak on spiritual matters and your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it's in everything that we do that we're trying to bring people into a closer relationship with your son, Jesus. And so we ask for your power and help to do that. And we, in everything we do, it's for your glory, Lord. And so we just raise you up. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I'm Dr. Suzanne Snyder. And um, I wear a lot of different hats. I worked as a medical missionary in Kenya for 16 years, and I still serve as a medical consultant for that organization, CMF International. I also volunteer with World Medical Mission in the uh, Samaritan's Purse Operation Heal Our Patriots program in Alaska. And um, for, uh, to pay my bills, I'm an uh, emergency room physician in Greenfield, Indiana. Um, I'd like to dedicate this talk to my dad, uh, Robert Ross, uh, who died last week. Um, caring for him, having him move in with me in my home and being his primary caregiver was kind of my primary mission field for the last three years. He's with Jesus. He's doing great. I miss him. Um, he was a great supporter of missions and of my work and um, of me. So I just honor him. Um, today we're going to be talking about malaria, looking at some of the um, what's new, some of the current demographics, some of what's new with diagnosis, care, and treatment, um, but keeping in mind what's um, practical and um, realistic in the world of the developing countries and uh, some of the mental, emotional, social, cultural aspects as well. I don't have anything to disclose, and um, I'm going to try to keep everything on label. Um, this is uh, basically I lived in Kenya, East Africa for 16 years. I worked among the Maasai tribal group, um, lived out in the bush for seven years, and then Nairobi for another seven years. I was the only physician on our team of medical, sorry, only physician on our team of evangelists and church planters. And so our family focused on the medical ministry, which was providing and supporting um, five to seven dispensaries in remote village locations. Um, we provided ambulatory care services as well as community health services. And it's a real joy to me that those clinics are still going. In fact, they have nine now and uh, a board that is – can you not hear me? No, not very well. Okay, sorry. I'll try to get close. That's much better. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, the clinic system that I worked with for all those years is still going. And there uh, are not missionaries there uh, working. They, it's totally nationally run, and um, um, they have their own board. Um, they let me continue to be on the board, and so I enjoy going back and participating with them. In fact, I just got back two weeks ago from a stint over there. I've also served in some other countries on short-term trips, um, so I've been able to see malaria in a variety of different uh, regions of the world, and so it's kind of from my uh, realm of experience that I'll be able to talk today and share what's going on with malaria. As I mentioned, I just got back two weeks ago from Kenya and um, was able to review kind of what's, what's going on, what are the new protocols and the new, new things that are available. So let's talk about uh, a patient. This is Sylvia. She's an adorable five-year-old who came in with fever and headache. Now, what do you think of with fever and headache in the tropics? Malaria, good. But what else could it be? Dengue, yeah, you were just in that last, chikungunya, okay. Meningitis, yeah. She doesn't look too bad. Typhoid fever, excellent. A lot of different possibilities. Uh, this could be, yeah, malaria, malaria, malaria. It could be upper respiratory infection, sinus infection, abscess tooth, with or without malaria. And we're going to hit on that in the future in terms that malaria sometimes can be co with other infections, and you have to kind of keep that in mind. 
Malaria worldwide is the most common infection. It's caused by the plasmodium parasitic um, infection, and the Anopheles mosquito is the vector. Um, and this is our beautiful Anopheles mosquito who's feeling very plump, uh, satisfied right now. Um, there are transmission possibilities. Um, congenital uh, infection can occur. Blood transfusion, sharing of contaminated needles, and organ transplant, but those are much less likely. Yes, the, the life cycle. Can't have a discussion of malaria without the life cycle. Um, this is very complicated, and so I like this one much better. It's just very simple. Um, basically, after you get the bite from the mosquito, the sporozoites go out to the liver. Um, the patient can be asymptomatic from um, 12 to 30 days, depending on the species, and then they're going to mature into the merozoites that go into the RBCs and replicate and eventually rupture that cell, and that's what causes a lot of the symptoms uh, with fevers and um, the destruction of the red cells and anemia. Um, they then mature into gametocytes, and that's kind of important to remember in terms of that is the reproductive uh, form that then the mosquito, when it bites, it's the gametocytes that it takes in to, that can then transmit malaria to somebody else. Um, of the four species, um, Plasmodium falciparum carries definitely the largest burden worldwide, being in Africa, New Guinea, and Hispaniola. Um, Plasmodium vivax is mainly in the Americas and West Pacific. Plasmodium malariae is pretty uncommon, prim primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Plasmodium ovale is primarily in Africa. What's new is there's actually a new species. What's well, not new? Um, malaria, as I, I actually was um, given this talk of... Um, assigned this talk, and so I had to do some homework to kind of, you know, read up on it and get refreshed. Um, there's lots of, lots of species. Um, Plasmodium uh, noalesi is not necessarily new, but the fact that it can cause disease in humans um, is new, and that's um, really over the last five years or so that there's been some studies. It's primarily um, in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, Myanmar, and forest regions, this is a plasmodium species that has a reservoir in monkeys. Um, it's very similar morpholo morphologically to plasmodium malariae, but it causes severe disease like plasmodium uh, falciparum because um, it infects all the RBC stages, has a very rapid 24-hour cycle, um, and most often causes death by pulmonary or hepatorenal failure. All righty. In looking at the map, where is malaria? Um, the highest transmission definitely is sub-Saharan Africa and Oceania. Where it's found really depends on temperature, humidity, and rainfall. It occurs in the poor tropic and subtropical areas where the Anopheles mosquito can survive and multiply and where the plasmodium parasites can complete that beautiful life cycle. Temperature is really critical. For example, Less than 68 degrees Fahrenheit, the plasmodium falciparum cannot complete its growth cycle, whereas plasmodium vivax is more tolerant of lower ambient temperatures. So malaria is occurring in the tropics and subtropics. Um, in areas where it's in high transmission, it's the leading cause of death and illness. The most, the, those that are most vulnerable are children who have not developed immunity or pregnant women because of waning immunity, and we'll discuss the reasons for that. And in many malaria-endemic countries, transmission doesn't necessarily occur in all the parts. And so there may be areas, like in Kenya, where it's not as prevalent, such as high altitudes or cooler seasons um, or the desert zones except the oases. So in warmer regions, their transmission is more intense, more year-round. In cooler regions, it may be variable. And that brings us to a couple of new terms, holoendemic and mesoendemic. So holoendemic basically means that malaria transmission is occurring year-round. It's high rates of infection, and so there tends to be more stable and um, greater immunity, so it's more protective. So people don't tend to get as sick with malaria. Even though they get it more frequently, they're not as ill, and there's fewer deaths. Whereas in the mesoendemic, it's variable. So it's seasonal variation in transmission, um, disease uh, occurrences may be less, and, but then it leads to fluctuating immunity, which then can lead to more severe disease, actually. Okay. 
It's also helpful to remember that the immune status can impact disease presentation. So as people have repeated episodes of malaria, they're going to develop antibodies and partial immunity. And so nationals can tolerate malaria a whole lot better than, say, expatriates who don't have uh, immunity. And then those who have less immunity are going to have more severe disease. So you see the more severe disease in the very young, the very old, pregnant women, and those with concurrent illnesses. Malaria is definitely the most important parasitic disease of humans with transmission in over 100 countries, affecting 3 billion people and 1 to 2 million deaths each year. Trying to find specific numbers was kind of hard. Um, I think there were numbers all over the map, and um, in there was a lecture, the previous lecture in here also mentioned that, because a, a lot of places just don't keep statistics, or you've got uh, folks that are ill or children dying in villages where they attribute it to other causes, so the statistics are kind of hard, but um, there are a couple of good trends, I think, that we can pick up here. Um, the WHO statistics for 2013, their most recent statistics are 198 million cases with 600,000 deaths. And of note, 80% of those are in sub-Saharan Africa, and 60 to 80% are in children under 5. So definitely the kids are getting hit hard. Um, one of the acronyms thrown out that's new is the uh, MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. Um, there are Millennium Development Goals across the board on lots of different um, issues, but regarding malaria, the goal is reduction of malaria morbidity and mortality by 75% by this year. That's a big goal. I don't think we've quite reached it, but there is progress. So when you look at the trends of the numbers, it, it actually is encouraging to me. Um, now, this is uh, WHO figures in their surveillance countries. So this is not worldwide necessarily, but this is looking at their 34 surveillance countries. You've got 1.5 million cases in 2000, and 2010 was 232,000. So that's decreased by 85%. That's pretty impressive uh, in the areas where they're really going at it with elimination programs. Deaths uh, peaked out in 2004 at 1.8 million. Um, but now it's down to that 600,000. So that's pretty impressive. That's a decrease by 45%. So it's not decreased by 75% that we were hoping by the MDG, but it's, a, it's good progress. So the elimination programs are, are making some, some progress. Okay, um, this is um, Nasha Pai, and uh, she came in, again, fever and headache, so the symptoms of malaria. Has anybody here had malaria? What did it feel like? Oh, <laughs> not good. Achy all over. Achy all over? Very, very tired. Tired, Thought you had the flu. Okay. Any other comments? Severe malaise. Severe malaise. Can't move. Wiped out. Anybody else? How high was your fever? Not much fever. 103. That's pretty miserable. Okay. So what I'm hearing consistently fits um, with my experience as well. I, fortunately, God has blessed me. I've never had malaria myself. I've had family members with malaria. Um, but definitely looks like the flu. Flu-like illness, fever, malaise, arthralgias, myalgias, headache, Sometimes some GI symptoms, although um, those are usually minor compared to the rest. Um, some epigastric pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. But usually if somebody presents primarily with diarrhea and fever, I, my mind goes a different way in terms of differential. Um, and usually uh, malaria is not going to give you a cough and runny nose and the cold type symptoms. Now, obviously, if someone has severe malaria and ARDS, it might be different. Um, the signs on physical exam can be minimal. People can walk in and they look great and say, I have malaria. <laughs> um, and, yeah, sometimes they do. People who um, have um, partial immunity can actually walk around with parasitemia and be totally asymptomatic uh, or very little symptoms. Sometimes they'll have a little bit of splenomegaly, um, maybe some anemia, and their conjunctiva will be pale. For severe malaria, you get into a lot of possible signs and symptoms. Um, and definitely change in mental status, neurologic um, findings, seizures, 
Um, and then with the end organ damage, that's when you can see the jaundice and the coagulopathies and pulmonary edema. One of the terms that was new to me was cytoadherence. Um, this is basically um, the parasitized red cells adhere to small vessels. And that's kind of what's giving you the uh, pathology in severe malaria, that those, those parasitized red cells are sticking to the small blood vessels and just kind of um, causing things to clog up. And uh, that's what's going to, in the brain, going to give you the neurologic changes and the seizures um, in the lungs, the pulmonary edema. Um, you get acidosis, and some of that is from the parasite actually producing lactate um, as well as um, hemodynamic compromise. Um, as the um, parasites are maturing and replicating, then the red cells rupture. That gives you anemia, anemia, and then hemoglobinuria in the urine gives the black water fever and the renal complications. Hypoglycemia is a very important thing to remember in that um, that can be a complication of the malaria as well as the treatment and needs to be recognized and treated. Um, cerebral malaria, one of the new things um, that I saw was a Blantyre coma scale. Um, this is a variation of the Glasgow coma scale. Does anybody do the Blantyre coma scale? Any familiarity? I, this was new to me. Um, Basically, the Glasgow Coma Scale that I use on a daily basis is not necessarily applicable to young children who are nonverbal. So the Blantyre Scale is applicable to young children. So if you have a Blantyre Coma Scale lesson two and parasitema, that um, is a diagnosis for cerebral malaria. Also, retinopathy is pathognomonic. So in cerebral malaria, you're going to get eye changes, fundoscopic changes, like um, changes in the vessels, uh, white patches, or white-centered hemorrhages. This is important because if you have somebody with altered mental status, fever, and even parasitemia, but does not have eye findings, then you may not have cerebral malaria, and you may have altered mental status for another cause, like hypoglycemia, or subacute seizures, or um, meningitis. So... We'll get to that in a minute. Um, cerebral malaria risks, definitely the very young, the very old, the non-immune, HIV positive, or pregnant women are at more greater risk. Cerebral malaria has a very high mortality rate, even with treatment, and it often leaves sequelae, neurological sequelae, particularly in children, high chance of having blindness, deafness, um, cognitive deficiencies, or seizures after cerebral malaria. So it's, it's a bad player, and we want to recognize it and treat it. Okay, some new stuff going on with pregnancy and malaria that was very interesting to read about. Um, poor pregnant women, they get it tough when with malaria. Uh, first of all, if they get malaria, they're going to have higher parasitemia than women who are not pregnant, um, so they can get more ill. The reason for that, several thoughts, are that they get more bites um, because they have... Um, um, higher body heat, and higher exhaled, exhaled CO2. So studies were looking at uh, women under bed nets who were pregnant versus non-pregnant, and the pregnant women had more, more mosquitoes and more bites, and they just attracted them, I guess. They also um, produce more cortisol, which may then blunt the cell-mediated immunity. So it's kind of like a double whammy in terms of illness from malaria. Also, primogravidas are going to suffer more than uh, multigravida women. Uh, again, as you live longer and have more malaria, you develop more immunity. Uh, in successive pregnancies, women are going to have greater immunity, so it gives some protection. In some areas, particularly the mesoendemic areas where folks get more severe cases, uh, maternal mortality for pregnant women is extremely high, and they tend to get more anemia, more hypoglycemia, and pulmonary edema. There's also very widespread fetal complications uh, with um, malaria in pregnancy. Low birth weight, um, both from stunted fetal growth and prematurity, premature births. Um, there's also increased um, fetal death and miscarriage and congenital infection. A lot of complications with um, malaria in pregnancy. Okay, there's a couple of new terms out there um, that I learned about. Pregnancy-associated malaria and pregnancy-specific immunity. And the pathophysiology of this is really kind of interesting. There are actually certain Plasmodium falciparum parasites 
that specifically have antigens that allow them to adhere to the placenta villi. Um, so this VSA, the variant surface antigens, mediate adhesion of the red blood cells to the syncytial trophoblast. And as they adhere, then it sets up a cytokine reaction and there's destruction of the villi and then fibrin formation and scarring and decreased oxygen and nutrient transport. And so then basically the child becomes malnourished um, chronically from having malaria in the um, placenta. So um, with repeated episodes of pregnancy, um, the woman can actually develop pregnancy-specific immunity as she develops antibodies to these VSA um, antigens. And so with successive pregnancy, she may actually do better and have improved fetal growth. Okay. Um, we mentioned that malaria can occur concurrently with other illnesses. Um, and this is because folks who have partial immunity may be walking around with asymptomatic parasitemia. Then they get another illness, their immunity wanes, and then the malaria can flare. There's also probably some biological association between HIV and malaria. And we don't totally understand that. Um, and as well with invasive bacterial infections. Don't totally understand, but um, folks with malaria are more likely to get salmonella infections. Um, there's definitely a close association between those, and so being aware and treating those, even um, preemptive antibiotics, would be worthwhile. There's also association because of distribution. You've got, when you look at the world map of malaria and the world map of geohelminths, uh, they overlap. So you've got people who are living in places where they're likely to get hookworm, roundworm, and malaria, uh, anemia from that, and then malaria that also compounds the anemia. So association between illnesses because of geography and also because of biologic association. Okay, how do we make the diagnosis of malaria? Well, a few years ago, the talk basically said if you have symptoms, the child with fever and headache in a zone, a malaria endemic zone, you should treat. Well, that's changing. Um, that's because we have the um, chance to test uh, even in remote locations. Um, just some background here in terms of laboratory values. Um, definitely the Gimsa stain thick and thin smears are still performed and are still the gold standard. They can identify parasitemia, they can identify malaria, and they can quantify it. So you can get a percentage of RBCs infected. And that can help judge um, the severity of the illness as well as um, response to treatment. Uh, other labs that are helpful um, include, like I said, the uh, acid-base balance. You often see acidosis from the parasites themselves um, producing lactate. Um, it's worthwhile to check CBC for anemia. You often see decreased platelet counts in malaria, as well as elevated liver tests and um, renal insufficiency and coagulopathy. The uh, blood smears are the gold standard, but what is coming quickly are the rapid tests. Um, as I mentioned, the gold standard gives you quantifiable data, um, quantifiable information on the percentage of red, red blood cells infected. Um, there's a little bit of discrepancy between the CDC and the World Health Organization, whether it's 2% or 5% as the cutoff for defining severe malaria. But definitely over 5%, you've got severe malaria. And then repeat blood smears can be very helpful to show response to treatment. And in fact, um, the recommendations are to repeat the blood smears at least once a day. And the CDC recommends twice a day every 12 hours, at least for two or three days, um, to guide therapy to make sure that the blood smears are decreasing in the uh, percentage of parasitemia or becoming zero. So you basically want to repeat it at least every day until the blood smear is negative or by day seven. It helps to confirm response to therapy or treatment failure. Um, and also if it becomes less than 1%, then the guideline would be to switch from IV to PO medicines. But like I said, what's coming up are the RDTs, the rapid diagnostic tests. And our clinic worker here, um, the laboratory technician, is holding one. Very elegant, looks like a pregnancy test. Um, it's a dipstick, um, and it's 
very elegant because it doesn't require refrigeration, it doesn't require electricity, uh, it doesn't require uh, fancy lab machines, and it can be done with very little training. It's a dipstick method. really just needs a drop of blood and a drop of reagent, and then by capillary action, you get a reading. There's a line for control and a line for testing. They're very accurate, 93 to 98%. Um, like I said, very simple and quick. They get you results in 15 to 20 minutes. And um, the only drawback is that it's qualitative, not quantitative information. And somebody was asking me about that earlier, like, well, does that... You know, is there, are there some problems with it? Well, yes. Um, if it's positive, it gives you some information. You, you know there's parasitemia, but in terms of exactly where you are in the process, you may not get that quantitative information. The guideline is basically if you do a rapid test then you should, and it's positive, you should go on to get the blood thick and thin smear. How expensive are they? That's a good question. Um, and I don't have a firm answer on that. Somebody else may be able to tell. We have them available in our clinic because the Ministry of Health supplies them. So you buy them in Africa cheap. I would think so. A buck a piece. I mean, for us, they're free. And <laughs> okay, we're going to get to that. Are they species specific? Um, Basically, blood uh, can be either through a blood draw, venous draw, or um, finger prick or heel stick prick. And there are over 200 different kinds commercially available. Um, and they're kind of based on what um, protein or enzyme or antigen is being tested for. So I'll describe three of those, and that will help to answer your question. Um, the HRP2 is the histidine-rich protein 2 test. Um, this is the one that we use in our clinic system. Um, it tests only for um, plasmodium falciparum. Okay, so it is species-specific. It's um, very sensitive. It will detect very low levels of parasitemia. And, um, however, because it is so sensitive and detects very low levels of parasitemia, it will continue to be positive even after treatment. So a positive test doesn't necessarily tell you if that's an acute infection or if, if it's a persistent infection not responding to treatment or if it's an old, recent infection. So I think that was one of your questions. So some problems there because it's not quantitative and it stays positive for a long period of time for a couple of weeks. And basically the guideline in Kenya is that if you've done this test or somebody has been treated for malaria, you can't really use it reliably at least for two more weeks. But it's kind of, you know, that's, that's just a ballpark figure. It can remain positive for longer than that in some folks. Okay, the um, PLDH is plasmodium lactate dehydrogenase, terminal enzyme in the parasite glycolytic pathway. Um, this, basically, there are two types um, for PLDH. There is one type that tests for PLDH that's in all of the human malaria species. There is a different type that is specific for either Plasmodium falciparum or Plasmodium vivax. So in, in this uh, rapid test, you can do a series of tests. You can do the one that's like specific for all of them to get generally. There's malaria. And then do the ones that are more specific to try to determine which of those two species if you feel the need to do so. Um, and this one will uh, correlate with parasite density. So um, basically it's going to turn negative when the blood smear turns negative. So it's a little more helpful for managing acute treatment. Then there's the aldolase. Uh, rapid diagnostic test. This is a parasite glycolytic pathway enzyme. Um, this basically is going to test for all the malaria species. It's not specific. It also correlates with the parasite density, so it's going to turn negative when the blood smear turns negative. This one, though, is less sensitive for Plasmodium falciparum than the HRP2. So which test you use, I guess, kind of depends on where you're at and what um, malaria species is most prevalent. Um, at least where I work in Kenya, the um, Plasmodium falciparum is by far the majority. So we stick to, and it's, um, we stick to the HRP2 because it's the most sensitive. Any other people experience in other areas to answer his question? Are you? I have a question. You mentioned uh, 
epilepsy and seizures, uh, I'm epileptic. And that makes me wonder, if I lived in Kenya, would I be far more apt to get malaria than if I were not epileptic? No. I don't know. You might, if, if you were to get malaria, you might have more chance of having a seizure because the malaria would probably lower your seizure threshold. But just the fact that you have a seizure disorder does not increase your risk of getting malaria over the person without seizures. Okay. All right. So how do we treat malaria and how do, how do we kind of go about managing and treating it? Um, like I said, in the past, the recommendation was presumptive therapy. If you think somebody's got malaria, fever, headaches, fever, whatever, in a malaria high zone, you treat it. Not so much anymore. I was very surprised when I was in Kenya this um, last month that um, the guideline and the, and the practice has actually changed a bit. That the goal really is obtaining a specific diagnosis over presumptive treatment. With the caveat that still the risks of under-treating severe malaria exceed the risk of over-treating uncomplicated malaria. Um, hopefully you can see this. this will, the, the talk can be on the web um, so that you can get this later as a reference. But this was the flow chart that basically kind of helped uh, work through this. Um, and it basically outlines that if a patient presents with fever, you first kind of evaluate, is this a patient that is really quite ill? Do they have signs of severe malaria? If they do, then presumptively treat. But if they're not severely ill, then go for a diagnosis and do a test, either a smear or an RDT. If the RDT or smear are positive, obviously you can diagnose malaria and treat that. But if the RDT or smear are negative, don't treat. And this has really changed uh, the practice, and we're treating presumptively less. We're, we're doing less presumptive treatment of malaria. Okay, so if we do have a positive RDT or smear and we diagnose malaria, what do we use to treat? Um, some of the lessons I think we've learned from the HIV epidemic. Um, over the past decade or two, resistance to antimalarials has been very problematic. We've had some drugs that we've basically had to take off the market, chloroquine, take it off the shelves because of resistance. And so now, actually, the standard of treatment is two-drug therapy. Um, Single antimalarial ter therapy is not the standard of care. We go with two drugs, two drug therapy. And this is going to forestall resistance, and it's going to protect the agents that are currently effective. By far, the most common treatment protocols are ACTs, which are basically the artemisinin combination treatments. And um, artemether and uh, lumefantrine is the one that we use most commonly, um, I will say something about chloroquine. I almost didn't put this in the talk, um, but there is something new about chloroquine. It's, it's coming back um, as a possibility. And um, there are a few pockets of chloroquine sensitivity in the world. They're pretty small, but Haiti, Dominican Republic, um, Mideast and Central America, there is some chloroquine sensitivity. But what's interesting is that in areas where chloroquine has been withdrawn as a treatment, we're actually seeing the reversion of chloroquine resistance. So we're actually seeing chloroquine-sensitive species reemerge. And so it's a possibility that we're going to be able to use chloroquine again in the future. Um, it's actually, there's some areas in Malawi where chloroquine is being used, again, not alone, but with another drug, and they're using uh, azithromycin together and having success in treatment. Okay, so for chloroquine-resistant malaria, chloroquine-resistant Plasmodium falciparum disease. There are several different options. It's basically combinations. Um, by far, most, most popular are the artemisinin combinations, but we also do have a tovaquone proguano, which is malarum, or quinine, along with another medication such as doxycycline or clindamycin, or mefloquine, also in combination with either atesinate or doxycycline. Um, the artemisinin combinations, I think, are preferred because really low toxicity, they're very well tolerated, and they're only three days. Whereas with quinine, you're looking at seven days, and you still get those gnarly symptoms with the ringing in the ear and um, the reversible hearing loss. Mefloquine also is sometimes not tolerated very well. You get the neurologic effects, the ataxia, the 
um, delirium, hallucinations, and um, GI upset. So definitely the World Health Organization recommends the artemisinin combination therapies as the first-line drug of choice for uncomplicated falciparum malaria. They're potent against all the asexual forms, so they cause very rapid decrease in um, parasitemia. Um, they also hit the gametocytes. They have low side effect profile and cause less hypoglycemia than the quinine combinations, only three days. Um, we don't know about their safety in first trimester. So as a consequence, we try to avoid using them in the first trimester. Um, so if you look at treatment regimens for pregnancy in first trimester, artemisinin is not included. However, um, in areas, well, in areas where there's resistance to the other regimens for first trimester pregnancy and severe malaria, sometimes artesanate is still used. Okay. Um, the artemisinin combinations include um, artesanate and artemether. So in a, several different possibilities of mix and match uh, with what you put with it. Uh, like I said, the most com common that we have is coartem, which is artemether and lumefantrin but you can put artesanate with amidioquine, artesanate with mefloquine, artesanate with vansidar, artesanate with azithromycin, so kind of put anything with it, get that two-drug therapy, and you're good to go. And it kind of have to go with whatever the local patterns of resistance are. Um, mefloquine resistance is getting to be really gnarly in Southeast Asia, so you go with something else there. There are definitely areas in Africa where Fancidar's resistance is a problem, so you just kind of have to know the patterns where you are and work to know what combination to go with. Um, for Kenya, um, coartem is our first uh, go-to drug, and this is a flow chart that basically lets the clinic worker know how to kind of work through that process. It's really pretty easy. You've got a patient with fever and a symptom, try to get a test, make a diagnosis if the RDT is positive, then you treat, starting by getting the weight. Um, the um, artemether and lumefantrin is weight-based, and so for children and adults, uh, you figure out the weight and then go to the scale in terms of whether the dosing is going to be one, two, three, or four tablets per dose. And the first dose is given there as a stat dose, direct observed, see the person take it, then instruct them to take the second dose eight hours later, and then twice a day for the remaining uh, two days total of three days. Um, it's just really nice that the weight-based dosing is pre-packaged, and they've got these lovely little foil packs with the pictures on the back, so it's just easy to see. This is what I take in the morning, this is what I take in the evening, and the color-coded and um, been very handy. So childhood, child packages per weight and adult packages as well. Unfortunately, there is some artemethacin resistance developing, and the World Health Organization has recommended that in those regions, adding a dose of primaquine on day one will help. Now, of note, this, the primaquine doesn't necessarily help treat the patient, but it's helping the community because the primaquine is going to attack the gametocytes, which is the form that gets transmitted back through the mosquito. So um, it's decreasing transmission in the community. Okay, for pregnancy, uh, we kind of hit on that. Um, first trimester, because we're trying to avoid the um, artemisinin, yeah, artesanate and uh, artemether um, because of unknown safety profile. So we stick with quinine and clindamycin. Second and third trimesters, we can go back to the ATC, ACT. You know, some of these acronyms are just crazy. <laughs> oh, um, and again, quinine and clindamycin would be fine to give in second and third trimester or um, artesanate and clindamycin. Okay, um, so that would be for uncomplicated uh, falciparum malaria. How do we treat severe malaria? Knowing that there are a lot of um, sequelae to severe malaria as well as high mortality, death can occur within hours. So we jump on this one and we treat aggressively. You start out with a full evaluation, the physical exam, retina, the fundoscopic exam, uh, the Blantyre, coma scale, and a lumbar puncture. Um, and really the only time not to do the lumbar puncture is if you've got papilledema on fundoscopic exam and then you would just treat um, presumptively. Definitely antimalarials, which we'll get to, and then supportive care. 
A lot of these patients are going to be hypoglycemic and need glucose support. They may be hypovolemic and need fluids. They may need ventilatory support or oxygen. Blood transfusion definitely are, are given, but the recommendation is to wait longer. And we're giving blood transfusions a little bit less. We're waiting till the hemoglobin is less than four. Um, definitely giving antipyretics. Anticonvulsants used to be um, recommended for uh, preventative prevention of seizures, but that's also changed. We give them only if a patient is having seizures. However, antibiotics. Um, are considered and given um, a bit more empirically and uh, definitely covering the gram-negative rods and the salmonella, as we talked about. Um, I know you can't read this. This is basically a flow chart with um, just a helpful aid, just kind of to remind us that severe malaria needs to be followed closely. This is a flow chart where vital signs and um, physical signs and symptoms and lab tests are plotted out so that you can follow the course of the patient. Well, for severe um, malaria, a lot of us would love to have patients in an ICU, but we don't have that. Um, or we can't get a patient there right away. So there's actually now um, pre-referral treatment. And this is a flow chart kind of describing how to do that. Um, it's basically um, starting treatment IM or rectally uh, for the patient who can't tolerate PO meds. And um, this, is, this describes kind of how to make up the IM injection of quinine. So pre-referral treatment is basically um, starting treatment right away for someone who has clinical severe malaria who can't get to a facility to get IV medications right away. So this is awaiting the IV dosing. Um, so if you have malaria that's either 5% parasitemia or organ dysfunction or vomiting, then you go with pre-referral treatment, which is an artemisinin, artemisinin um, IM or quinine IM or both. Another beautiful thing is that artesanate can actually be given rectally. Um, so that's very handy. Um, rectal suppositories are available, 100 milligrams for uh, infants, um, 400 milligrams for um, children over six and adults. Um, dosing is there. And um, even though this is like supposed to be a stat dose until you can get the IV going, sometimes, you know, we just can't get the patient to a hospital anytime real soon. When I live in Kenya, and even still, you don't travel at night. And so you got the sick patient, and you have to kind of keep treating them. Um, so the pre-referral treatment can actually keep going um, as long as you need it to until the patient um, can tolerate PO, and then you switch them over to oral meds. And you continue the treatment. And this is a chart that kind of describes how to continue that quinine oral treatment. Quinine, IV, and IM has a lot of... Um, Difficulties, um, so um, switching them to oral as soon as possible is recommended. Uh, with antimalarials for severe malaria, basically it's two classes, artemisinin derivatives or the um, quinine quinidine. Uh, dosages are there. Um, slight differences of doses between artesanate and um, artemether. So artesanate has the most rapid action and uh, lower side effects. Um, so that's kind of why it's preferred. Um, doesn't cause hypoglycemia. And it's an, an IM dose there, 2.4 milligrams per kilo, given uh, times five at those hours. Like I said, it can be either IV, IM, PO, or PR. Kind of handy. And then you follow it with a complete oral regimen. Quinine um, can be given at IV or IM, 20 milligrams per kilo load, over a four-hour period of time if it's IV. So you don't want to give it fast because it can really run you into trouble with hypoglycemia. Quinine is a pancreatic secretagogue, so you get increased insulins, hyper, hyperinsulinemia, and that causes more hypoglycemia. Um, so you get the loading dose, and then you have the 10 per kilo every 8 to 12 hours um, for three days or until the patient can tolerate PO. Quinidine is also an option, um, although the recommendation is to have the patient on a heart monitor in my area. But yeah, that's right. We can do that. Um, so we give it really slow um, in a IV solution that has a lot of sugar. So far, I've been very fortunate with that. Uh, we talked about the hyperinsulinism and 
Yeah, this the tinnitus and the nausea, the vomiting, dizziness, the hearing loss, although those are really um, inconvenient. Uh, they're uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable. Um, they are reversible, um, but it, it definitely increases the toxicity of the drug. And whether you're using the artemisinin derivatives for severe malaria or quinine, you have to add a second agent, and then once you switch from the IM, IV to PO, you have to then complete the full PO package. So each one of those um, acute treatments is followed by the full oral treatment. Okay. So once somebody, you know, came off the quinine, well, then they would get either quinine PO for the full seven days or they would get the um, coartum for three days. Okay. Okay, um, some notes about prevention. Um, something new. Well, bed nets are not new. Bed nets have been around for a while. Trying to get people to use them has been around for a while. But guess what? People are actually using them, at least in our communities. Um, and what's um, just phenomenal to me is that there are long-lasting nets. These are nets that are pyruthrin impregnated, but in such a way that it lasts for five years, even with washing. They're waterproof. How cool is that? Um, and people are using them. They're actually using them, and malaria is going down. And then a couple of notes about a, a couple of terms you may see. Um, IPTP, ISTP. Um, these are pregnancy management, um, either intermittent um, prophylactic treatment or intermittent screening and treatment. And it kind of depends on where you're at on which one is being used. Um, the intermittent treatment basically is Fancidar, given three doses throughout pregnancy. And um, the other um, method is to use intermittent screening and treatment only if positive. But both of these have been shown to be very helpful to decrease anemia and the growth failure that comes with malaria and pregnancy. Okay, I figured somebody would ask me about the vaccine. Everybody always asks about the vaccine. I wish there was a vaccine. Um, they've been trying to develop a vaccine for as long as I've been in medical practice, almost 30 years. Um, there is the RTS vaccine. It's a recombinant vaccine, and I've got the description of what all the, the letters stand for. Um, it's in phase three trials, um, and it shows a whopping 50% protection. Not very good, which actually goes down to 30%, 36% in four years. So it's not very efficacious. Um, usually we like to see more like 80 to 90 or higher, but it is something. Um, it requires three doses and a booster, so it could be incorporated into the childhood vaccination schedule. I have no idea if this is actually going to be coming out as, as something that we're going to use or not, but that's what's out there right now. Okay. And what's new is there actually is hope. Um, when I was in Kenya last month, really I sensed um, hope from people that there is less malaria burden, that people are using the bed nets, um, that the Ministry of Health is coming out and doing spraying at um, some villages, so there actually is a barrier uh, to the vector uh, happening. And people are um, more savvy and more educated and more aware about getting treatment quickly. And we have a lot of people who, I've got a headache. Oh, I'm going to go get treated. And <laughs> there, there are people coming in before they're horribly ill. They're coming in at the early stages of illness. And it, it really is helping and it's saving lives. So the elimination efforts are making progress. Okay. Um, if you are interested in getting the PowerPoint, you're welcome to just shoot me an email and I can um, uh, send you the link. Thanks. And feel free to give me a call or discuss mission, medical missions or whatever. Yes, we'll open up to questions. Did you discuss prophylaxis for like short-term missionary terms? No, I didn't. I didn't. I kind of let. I purposely left that out. <laughs> so, but we can we can open that up. We've got a few minutes. Um, I just got back from Kenya. I took doxycycline. Um, when I was living there, I took mefloquin, um, and. There, I, saw, I saw a wide array of options. Um, I took mefloquine, and I took it religiously. And um, Although I started out with chloroquine back in the 90s, 1990s, and then when that was resistant, we switched to mefloquine. I, uh, I stayed on it continually because I was in and out of the bush enough that 
you know, two weeks before and four weeks after or whatever, I would just kind of be in new cycles. So I just stayed on it. My family, however, who my girls were in school in Nairobi and were only out to the bush maybe periodically, um, they didn't take anything while they were in the city at higher altitude, but they would take something, they would take mefloquine when they went to the coast or out to the bush. I had other teammates who, even despite my recommendations, didn't take anything at all and would just wait until they got malaria and then treat it. Um, but I don't know. We tend to see the bad cases, and I had uh, some expatriate friends whose child got extremely ill um, in Tanzania, so I tended to recommend prophylaxis. And it kind of depends on resistance patterns. You know, if I were going to Southeast Asia, I'm not sure I would rely on mefloquin. Um, a lot of visitors get uh, malarone prescribed by their doctor. You know, it's not going to hurt. It's kind of inconvenient to take it every day, and it, it's prohibitively expensive, I think, for somebody who's living in the region. I see some head nods. So it, the recommendations vary depending on where you are, how long you're staying, what you're doing, and the, the endemicity. Yes? What is the government spraying? Did he take I don't know. What is the government spring? Does anybody know? I'm sorry, I don't Rachel know. Rachel Carson pretty much stamped it out. Uh, so we're sparing robins and we're <coughs> open. Uh, it's how we got them in the U.S. Any other questions? Yes, sir. We can talk later, but I just got back from Togo, and uh, a lot of the staff who are on prophylaxis are still getting malaria. And I was on Doxy. And my sixth week there, I got it. Hmm. So he said in Togo, a lot of staff on prophylaxis are on still getting malaria. The expat are on prophylaxis, and they're still getting malaria. They're still getting malaria. And then you were on doxycycline and still got malaria. That's a problem. What about you? Are you on anything? I, I always tell people <coughs> they should expect to still get malaria, even if they're on prophylaxis, but they hopefully will make it alive back to their home country. That's right. Mm. Co-Artem <laughs> Co is magic. Co-Artem is magic. It sure is. I still carry Co-Artem in my little personal med kit wherever yes, I, I go. I'm doing that. That and Giardia Medicine. You bet. Yes. Last week, one of my partners, uh, one of my team coming back from uh, Sudan got, you know, her fever shot to 104 plus on the plane. The little structure went to 104. And just... He's talking about a. So I, I was just recommending carrying Where were you coming from? <coughs> South Sudan. So a teammate from coming from South Sudan. Probably had malaria, became symptomatic on the plane home, and some of the teammates had coartum and gave it to her, and she recovered, but could have been quite ill. Um, Dr. Rick Sakura pointed out that even though folks on his team may have be on prophylaxis, he usually advises them that expect to get it anyway, but you may be less symptomatic, which I would agree. Yeah. Yes. What was your experience with the side effects from the mefloquine? Side effects from the mefloquine. Ah, um, antidotically. Personally, um, I had some sleep disturbance, um, but that tended to wear off over time, or maybe I just habituated, um, and definitely had some um, short-term visitors who had severe nausea and vomiting and GI upset and were intolerant. Um, but weird dreams, weird dreams, I think, was the number one complaint. Depression. Some people have seen depression. Mm -hmm. And I don't recommend it for people who have active depression. Um, you know, people, I get a lot of questions about short-termers and teams and going over. And there, you know, so many people are on SSRIs in the U United States that I think if we eliminated mefloquine from everybody who's on SSRI, there wouldn't be anybody taking it. Um, so I usually say active um, psychological issues or seizure history, or cardiac arrhythmia history. Yeah. There were some other hands. Yes, sir. Yeah, I've got a question and then a comment. Uh, I've been, maybe somebody can help me here, but 
I've been trying to help one guy in Uganda in particular get uh, roughly 10 anti-mosquito nets. Every place I've contacted, like Vandergaard, Prandinson, uh, the Methodist Church, or Madison, Malaria, and all that, they say we don't deal with small quantities. I don't know if you or somebody else uh, know where to get, uh, for example, 10. I understand they cost about $10 a piece, but some of the cheaper imports are apparently no so he's looking for somebody who could give him a resource as to where to order uh, effective and sure. worthwhile bed nets in small quantities, like number yeah. 10. I don't know. It's interesting that, you know, in Kenya it would be easy to get a bed net. You know, we're giving them out to people. Here I try to find one, and it's hard. So and then the second part, I'll just quickly. Go, yeah. Uh, some of you are aware of this. I've got my own website, helpingworldwide.org, that has over 100 sources of medical supplies and about another 250 organizations that are doing all kinds of things throughout the developing world. If anybody's in from in, interested, I've got pamphlets and cards about that, so just see me afterwards. Thank you. Okay, he's got Maybe pamphlets and cards. My website's helpingworldwide.org, and I've got some pamphlets and business cards about that. <coughs> yes, ma'am. We'll advise whenever you see uh, compensated heart failure, with fever, with any, anything else, except for malaria, is a big cause, I think, of decompensated heart failure. Decompensated heart failure um, test for malaria. I would agree, yeah, particularly in the tropics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that can be, it can be multifactorial um, in terms of severe malaria, anemia, um, the hepatosplenomegaly, tropical splenomegaly syndrome. Tachycardia. Dysmia and malaria. Yeah, test. Yes, sir. This morning you mentioned about SEPTRA being used. Yeah. He said SEPTRA being used, right, um, in HIV prophylaxis, HIV care and treatment. HIV positive patients are placed on cotrimoxazole, um, prophylaxis for opportunistic infections. I usually think of that as being protective against PCP or now pneumocystis gyrovecchi. Um, but also protects against malaria. It's preventative for malaria and right, so pneumonia and diarrhea. Basically, for your gram negatives and for PCP. It's going to give some protection for gram negatives. That's but true. Also, yeah. just normal <coughs> prophylaxis, go what? One, one double strength a day mm -hmm. also helps to prevent against malaria? That's what the literature, yeah, that's what I've found in my study for these um, t lectures. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, I work in a surgical um, setting in uh, West Africa and Niger, and we're finding a lot, we always test for malaria preoperatively. Mm. And we are discovering, I mean, we need to do our medical research on this, but a lot of our children, um, first or second day post-op, after having propofol or other general anesthetic agents, are, are testing positive. You know, mm -hmm. they have fever, you know, we mm -hmm. smear, and, and they have yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. She's saying in uh, West Africa, Niger, that they're seeing flares of malaria post-op in children. But they're, they're, they're clear pre-op. Oh, they're clear pre-op. We, we do the smears as a part of our pre-op workup for our, our patients. And it's a blood smear. Okay. Well, that's interesting because I would, I would expect a blood smear to be fairly sensitive in picking up parasitemia, but it's not 100%. And so you may have a very, very low-level parasitemia that is not picked up by your lab. It's also um, operator-specific, you know, in terms of the patient, I mean, the clinician that's looking at the blood smear on how well that's going to give quality results. Um, but my thought would be that the child definitely is having impact on his immune system with the surgery, with recovering from the surgery, from the anesthetic agents, and the malaria is flaring. Does anybody else have a comment on that? 
malaria flaring after surgery. Kind of makes sense to me. Are you aware of the relatively new teaching tool, the malaria cube, made by the people who did the Avanji cube? Ah, he's saying S-I-M. there's a malaria cube similar to the Avanji cube. Yeah, yeah. SIM and that. World Vision tested it, and it's being used out there. Now. Cool. It's really cool. Well, I think it's uh, 5 o'clock. I want to be sensitive to the time. And I will release you. I'll be down here to answer further questions. Thank you so much for your attention.